Revelation chapter 18, let's begin in verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for her of her torment, or for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and bodies and more, most importantly, in souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that has, was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ship, sailors, and as many as tra- trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas! that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, Flutists and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more. 
For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Let's pray together. Lord, anytime you you aware that anytime we come before you and your word, Lord, we're, we recognize that we're insufficient to understand it and to fully comprehend it and to apply it apart from your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would illuminate your word to our hearts, Lord. We thank you that your word is already powerful. We just pray for our hearts, Lord, to be able to receive everything that you want to speak to us about. We pray that we would be willing to repent, to turn from anything that you want us to turn from, to follow you in any way that you want us to follow you as your disciples. And we pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. We pray that they would come to know you. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we looked at religious Babylon, and this week in chapter 18 we're going to be looking at commercial Babylon, and the timing couldn't be, to me, any more uh, amazing, because, I mean, we, we aim to be led by the Spirit with what we cover when and when we start a book and when we take a break and all these things, and when you see something line up like this, it's just confirmation that despite all of our hard-headedness and our uh, an inability at times to hear from him, it seems that sometimes we get it right. Because it's been two days since Black Friday. <laughs> We're talking about commercial Babylon. And you look at some of the video feeds of inside these stores where people are full-on brawling against each other and fighting and so forth, and you just wonder how important can these things be. But as easy as it would be for us to criticize others, because we know inside of us we have the same ability to, to, to get, violence over, get violent over some things that are physical and so forth at times or, or material things. You know, we're, we're all, we all come from the same gene pool. You know, we're all sons of Adam. We're all fallen apart from the Lord. We could do any of those things, but we can have the same type of passion and be willing to go against what God's Word says at any given time for certain material things in certain circumstances. So none of us, as much as we can criticize those, we have to ultimately point a finger to our own hearts because we can be just as carnal, maybe expressed in other ways, but we can be just as carnal as anyone that we see, you know, throw down in Walmart or whatever and, you know, get violent. And, you know, I mean, I, it seems like every year it gets worse and worse and worse, what people are willing to do to, to get a, you know, $10, 50-inch screen TV, but such as it is. Commercialism is not merely buying a lot of things. Commercialism and the love for things um, is where you, it's, it's related to where you place those things in, in the order of importance in your life. What categories you place them in. What supreme passion that you have or what you put in front of everything else. Your priorities. Commercialism is being consumed with materialism and, and material things to the neglect of God's word and our relationship with him. At least for the Christian, that's what it means for us. And it's all related to our hearts. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon or money. 
And so the Lord Jesus knew there would be these competing things in our lives. One of the reasons I believe he spoke more about money than heaven or hell or a lot of things is that he knows the hold that it has on us. He knows, and the enemy knows the hold that it has on us. A few years ago, we did a Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University, and we're praying about doing another one. But man, talk about warfare before that thing started. Because the enemy knows the hold that he has on us and on marriages and on families and on the way a family trajectory is going to go related to what's modeled for those children and so forth and being burdened down with debt and all these things. And so it's, it's a really important thing. Now, unfortunately, since leaders in the body of Christ have abused the subject of money, some preachers and some teachers will stay away from it entirely. But that's as if it's up to them. I mean, when you teach the whole Bible, we have to teach every verse. All Scripture has been given by inspiration of God. All Scripture. So when we come across things, we have to cover them. And it's supposed to give the teacher of God's Word great boldness to be able to, to say things what God exactly how God articulates them, knowing that you're not cherry-picking or selectively picking certain passages to have uh, meet your agenda and so forth. And I'm not going to teach on tithing today, so you don't have to relax. You know, take a little breather there. Take a deep breath in, deep breath out. Uh, not that I'm ashamed of teaching on giving or anything like that, but I just want to talk a little bit about the materialism that can flood our hearts. John wrote, and, and he's the one obviously recording this revelation, he wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But we do this crazy thing. We do this mental gymnastics that we can have the love of the Father in us, flowing from us, free-flowing from us, and still be consumed with the things of this world. And God knows differently. And so he's very willing to come right in and to interrupt our lives and speak to us by by his word through the Spirit and say, get your priorities straight. And I think that's the message that he has for all of our hearts, myself included to have our priorities in the right place. Commercial Babylon, as we'll look at, I believe was, is going to be rebuilt. Now, it may not be exactly where it, the, the traditional site. It could, some people believe it's going to be on a port. That's why he talks about these ships and so forth. We're not told specifically, but it's very likely that it's going to be built uh, at least in an area where people can, from, from their ships or from some kind of port, area they can see this devastation of this city physically because it's going to be destroyed by fire god's going to directly do that so that whether it's right on the 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 sea or at least the smoke going up is so uh, you know uh odd you know odd spire or whatever where you just arrest your focus you can see it even from a distance and and you'll be able to see or people will be able to see uh god's judgment on that the fuel of the city of this Babylon city is commercialism and a lust for accumulation of wealth. That will be the drug that this city will be on, so to speak. And so it's still, it's still going on today. It's always been going on and it's going to continue. But ultimately it's going to culminate in that city that's going to be the hub or the, the, the headquarters, so to speak, of, of in the seven-year tribulation where a lot of commercialism is, is you know, will they, where they act upon those, that system, it's going to be headquartered, so to speak, there in that system, city rather. And we're going to see God judge that city. And the world will mourn. 
You know, this, the Bible mentions Babylon over 260 times. It's second only to Jerusalem in the Bible in terms of the frequency with which it's mentioned there. And so we have to realize that this city is going to gain prominence wherever it is, and it's, it's, people are going to be so enthralled with it and so into what it represents that they're going to be mourning greatly when God judges it. But we have to recognize that this hasn't happened yet. There's a lot of pro- uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that haven't been fulfilled related to God judging Babylon. The Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians, but the city was not consumed and burned to the ground. They lived there. They kind of remodeled it and, and inhabited it and so forth. And, and eventually it completely became inhabitable. But it doesn't have, we don't see the type of judgment that we're going to see here in this chapter as of yet. So I believe that's, that's going to happen. The difference between religious Babylon that we looked at last week and commercial Babylon, in one of the main ways there's a distinction is that God uses uh, the Antichrist and the, and the one world government to judge mystery spiritual Babylon or religious Babylon. But here, he's, this, with commercial Babylon, he's going to directly judge it. He's going to directly judge it and consume it with fire. And he does so within, within an hour. I mean, that's better than lens crafters, you know? You get your glasses in about an hour. This is like, I mean, we're talking this huge, massive kingdom and this city that, that basically oversees the world's commercial affairs brought to nothing within one hour, within a very, very short time. Notice in verse 1, he says, After these things I saw another angel. So he, he, last week we saw a mighty angel show John something, brought him out to the wilderness and showed him this great harlot there, and riding a beast and so forth. Now we see another angel. Some people wrongly, I believe, talk about this being the Lord Jesus or whatever, but the word another means another of the same kind. This is a created being. This is an angel that comes out, coming down from heaven, we're told, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. We have no idea what angels look like. We see pictures of it. We see them manifest themselves. But we have no idea how huge they are, how great they are, how majestic they are. And here he says, they, this angel's countenance is so bright and impressive, it illuminates the earth with, its, with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon is gr- the great. So they refer to it as great. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now the tense is there. Talk about a once and for all event that happens. It's not going to be resurrected after this point. It's a once and for all thing. And it says, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So we see what God's real assessment is of this city. The outside could look amazing. I'm sure it will. We see a great description of it being super affluent and, and decked out with all these amazing things. I mean, just think about all the wor- uh, earth's wealth being poured into one city to have it represent the commercial empire of the world in that time. It's going to be very, very impressive. But it's still from the outside looking in. God's the one that has an entirely different assessment. Because anyone looking at that city would have a completely different assessment than God does about what's really going on, what's really going on behind the scenes. And he says, demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. When you study the Bible, 
you see that birds are never emphasized or focused on as something of, of a good thing. And, and you see that consistently through, through Scripture. And so it's, he's saying here, this, is, this Babylon, even though it looks great and is affluent and looks wonderful on the outside, the truth about it is that it's wicked, it's influenced by hell itself, and it's demonic. Now, related to commercialism, the appeal of it looks great on the outside, doesn't it? It looks beautiful. It looks enticing. It looks fulfilling. It looks like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> it looks like, wow, this, if I don't have this, I'm missing out on something. And that's why when Jesus talks about what true riches are in his word, it's important for us to recognize we need to go work off of God's assessment and his definition of what wealth is and what true fulfillment is instead of looking on the outside. Because again, everyone looking at Babylon would be very impressed with it. But it's filled with, and that's the, that's the imagery here at the, end, at the end of verse 2. It's filled with demonic influence. It's filled with everything that's disgusting to the Lord. But it's alluring because it's deceptive. So we need to understand that. Now he says in verse 3, For all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So it says the nations... The whole world is intoxicated. Last week we saw the world being intoxicated by religious Babylon's uh, lies and deception and so forth. It's self-focus, which is like a drug to our sinful natures. And, And here it says that they were drunk with the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. So the leadership of this world is going to be engaged in sinful activity with this commercial Babylon. And we're going to see at the end of the chapter the the fulfillment of that or the ultimate expression of that wickedness, persecution of God's people. And then it says, And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So there's going to be a system that is set up that's going to be the catalyst for wealth that we've never seen in this world before. And I believe, especially the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, there's going to be great prosperity. I think there's going to be a a need to recover from the effects of the church being raptured. That is going to cause a lot of financial hardship and a lot of instability in the world. But it's also going to be a catalyst for uh, someone to come in with the solution to all of this and set everything up in a way. And I believe that it'll be uh, sped up and and, and exponentially... uh, put in place to the point where people see a very fast response and a very quick solution to the apparent problem and needs of this world. And so the, the merchants of this earth, they become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Now notice in verses 4 through 7, God's people get sucked in to her deception. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues for her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities so he forgets ours but he remembers hers render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed mixed double for her in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously in the same measure give her torment and sorrow for she says in her heart I sit as queen I am no widow and will not see sorrow. So notice the angel isn't the one speaking in verse 4. 
we see come out of her my people. I believe that's the Lord. That's the voice of the Lord coming forth there because it's his people that he's addressing. And the reason I believe that it's, I, I believe that he adds, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive her plagues is an expression of God's heart and his love towards the people that he loves. He doesn't want them to, to get caught up in all of this and receive the, the, the punishment or, or have the effects of her sin uh, you know, in, in their lives in a negative way. See, God forbids things because they're bad. They're not bad because he forbids them. And God is a loving father. He wants to protect us from things. And he comes in and says, you've been deceived. You've been deceived by the lies of this great commercial Babylon. And I want to free you from this. Come out. Notice he gives them the responsibility there in verse 4. Come out. He doesn't say, you know, let me take you out. He says, you come out. You make that decision. And the scary thing is, we can be so deceived related to our priorities and what we're investing in and who we're following and who are our idols and what are our idols that we cannot even see that we are completely following this type of commercialism or the, this idolatry of the love of money. And it's true, especially in our culture where we're so affluent and our culture coddles and, and backs all of that philosophy up. And unfortunately, there are religious leaders that back it up as well. One of the clues of our, for us to know how we're doing related to this, and sometimes it's very subtle, and we have to let the Holy Spirit search our hearts, because sometimes, I don't know about you, but I don't even know my own heart sometimes. You know, and I have, and our, our hearts are deceptive, and we, they can even fool us <laughs> at times. It's funny when people say, well, God knows my heart, and they're in willful disobedience. Like, that's not a good thing right now. You know, uh, think about this. Yes, he knows your heart. That should put that should give you a holy fear that he knows your heart. He knows every wicked thing in your heart, every bad motive. And it's true for for all of us. I want us to hold our place here and I want us to turn over to Luke chapter 12. The Lord really impressed this passage on my heart this week. And I believe he wants to uh, help us with our hearts, potentially. Luke chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Luke 12, 13. I'm looking, youth, if you're turning. I'm, looking, I'm watching you. Pay attention now. Then one of, from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Wow. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will put down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like the American dream to me in a lot of ways. 
let's accumulate wealth and let's build up storage houses financially and so forth. And let's do everything in our power to make our lives as easy and as, as, as happy as we possibly can. Because ultimately, you know, God is supremely concerned about my comfort. Didn't you know that? I, I mean, isn't that in First Th- uh, Fleshalonians? You know, it's right there in our minds. That's not a real place in the Bible. Some of you are looking for First Thessalonians. Where can I get a hold of this scripture? I need to claim that. It's in all of us. But let's really look at Jesus' commentary on this man in this parable. In our lives, it seems like the goal is to get as much abundance as we possibly can so that we can take it easy. And, and feel-good preachers are very quick to back this up. And so many of them will never say the word sin or repent. They won't exhort God's people. It's all about making our lives as successful and as prosperous as possible. That's the ultimate goal. As if Jesus never said, anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And whoever wants to lose his life will save it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it or find it. That We need to hear that in our culture. Over and over. I need to hear it every single day. Because sometimes we think God's building my godly character and so forth to get me to the point where I have the most ease and comfort as possible and then I'll be doing it right as a Christian. Can't be any further than the truth. God's called us to give our lives away. And teachers of God's word are afraid to ask people to serve because they don't want to rock the boat and, and, and go against that that thinking or that mindset that everything is for my comfort and I'm supposed to yeah I'll serve if it conveniently fits into my schedule and I don't really have to sacrifice anything then you're not serving the Lord Jesus served and he sacrificed to serve and we can't be servants if we're not like Jesus and we can't be like Jesus unless we're serving it goes together so our whole lives are not supposed to be inward we're not supposed to be like a swamp where I mean, there's no outflow. God calls us to be like a spring where life comes from us and it goes out from us. And the American dream that's in some ways, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to get a house and all these things. God can have all of that as part of his plan for our lives. But to the neglect of God's word, to the neglect of his calling upon our lives, we have to be very careful. I see Christians a lot. And I've seen it in my own life, trust me, too much. Where there are all kinds of plans that are being made, especially financial ones, without a syllable of prayer, without an ounce of prayer, without any kind of fasting, without any kind of seeking wise counsel, just making decisions as if I owned my own money. And I don't. What if you gave someone all their money, they they didn't have any source of income, and you were wealthy, and that you just gave them some money, and they just started making decisions left and right, didn't consider what you thought because the arrangement was that they were going to be managing your money, but they were going to be taken care of as a result of it, but they just started making decisions left and right, would you want to really give them more money? And how excited would you be that they would be a manager of your, of your money? That's how it is for us. Everything we own is His. We don't just give the amount that he's called us to give financially to the church 
And then now it's up to us to do whatever we want with the rest of that money. That's not biblical. It's all his money. It all has to be considered and so forth. And I've been guilty of it plenty of times myself. So we don't have choirs, but if we did, I'd be preaching to it right now. We have a worship team. I'm preaching to the worship team right now. That doesn't really fit. Can't really say that. But it's someone else's money. And I don't want anyone to misunderstand. God's okay with us having fun. He wants us to enjoy things with his money, but not excessively and not to the neglect of what he's called us to do with it and not without prayer and not without counsel, not without looking at his word. He wants us to be faithful with his finances and in disobedience to that, he's going to discipline us as any loving father would. If you give your teen, glad you teens are in here, you youth are in here. If you are given an allowance or you have to work for, for money or something around the house, there's, it's important that you spend your money wisely and the parents will not be so motivated to give you more if you keep misappropriating that, those funds. So God wants us to reap eternal dividends with our money that we've been entrusted with, that, that's his. And just like the man in this parable, we can assume... We, wrongly, that we have a long-term arrangement with God. And we're going to be around for decades. And we can just make all these plans without praying about it. And he's, look, look what he says. Your life is, is required of you. Look at verse 20. Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then, those, then whose will those things be which you have provided? And then he adds, verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Well, I know one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that I lay up treasure for myself. That's obvious from the verse. See, God equates being rich towards him, not by how much we can lay up for ourselves, but rather how much we use to affect eternity and how much we give him glory for related to what we use his funds for and how we affect other people's lives and how we... Get, we, we become that spring of life instead of that, that swamp that smells and stinks and is full of death. Spiritually, that's what we can become. And we can hoard life's resources on ourselves and the whole time he's wanting us to have open hands with it that he can bless people through that. And no one's ever going to be a, a debtor to God. I mean, no one's ever going to have God be in debt to them. He will always bless us and so forth. So he says, have faith, have, have uh, the right perspective. Remember, we like to quote James, where James said, you know, we say, if it's the Lord's will, we don't want to just, you know, make plans. But I want to read to you what those plans are about in James chapter 4. He says, in James chapter 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there. And this is the part we never, ever read, as if it's not even in the Bible. Buy and sell and make a profit. All those plans about which he speaks is specifically talking about things that involve finances. Because if we move and we relocate and all that, of course that requires financial consideration. But then he says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is, is it even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We shall live and do this or do that. Sounds a lot like what this man in this parable needed to do. 
He was thinking, oh, I have a long life, and I'm just going to hoard life's resources on myself and so forth. And God says, that's a, that's a foolish way to look at it because you don't know how much time you have left. So you're spending all this time hoarding all this stuff when you're, you're going to be done. Your life is over today. And that's the same thing James says. I believe he probably was thinking back to this parable. But we don't know when our life is up. Look at verse 22 in our, in our still in Luke. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And isn't that the problem with us related to trusting God and sowing into eternity? It's trusting that my life will turn out in this life okay if I do that. Well, that's radical. That's just for missionaries. Aren't missionaries the only ones that are supposed to sacrifice everything and not have any savings or or just give and sacrifice everything to to fulfill the call? No, it's for everybody. And, And he says we need to trust him. We can trust him that he will take care of our needs if we put the kingdom of God first. Verse 29, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. You know, I look at the end of verse 29, or have nor have an anxious mind. I never remember reading that before this week. I mean, I know I have, but I never remember. He adds to it, nor have an anxious mind. God's love wants us to not have an anxious mind. A loving Father's heart does not want us to have an anxious mind. He wants us to trust Him. For all these things, the nations, isn't that interesting? We're talking about the, na- the commercial Babylon where all the nations come together in a commercial system and so forth, which is centered in one city. For all these things, the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This part gets hard. He can't really be meaning this, can he? Verse 33, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The solution to covetousness, the solution to having the love of money, the solution to not being engaged in commercialism and putting that before God and having our priorities uh, messed up is to be more of an outflow. Be more of an outflow of God's blessing. I'm not just talking about the church. I'm talking about in every situation, in every relationship that we have. To put His kingdom first and to give. You know, giving isn't a bill that we pay. It's not some obligation it's something that we get to do. It's a privilege that we get to do. 
We get to show God our trust in Him. We get to show Him our faith in Him. We get to demonstrate that we really do want to sow into eternity. And He loves a cheerful giver. He loves somebody that gives with a cheerful, uh, joyous heart, that's doing it for the right motivation. It's important that we see that. Let's go back to verse 8. In Revelation. Revelation 18, verse 8. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord who judges her. Again, this is God's direct judgment. He's not using any other party or agent through whom he would bring judgment to to this system. He is judging this system and this city directly by fire. And people, the commentators, well, how is he going to do that? Is it going to be a nuclear bomb? Is it going to be... And they're trying to figure out naturally how God would do it. He doesn't need anything natural. I think Sodom and Gomorrah could tell us that that's the truth. He can just devour something with fire directly. Verse 9, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxurious with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. They didn't weep for what it cost people's lives to produce that wealth, many of them, but they're weeping for this city. There are people when the stock market crashed in the Great Depression, and even the, when it crashed in uh, September of 2008, they wept. The people that were so invested in the stock market and that was their everything, they wept on that day. But that's nothing compared to what's coming related to what's going to happen to them with with this judgment. Verse 10, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. He's going to say it three times, one hour. Your judgment has come. Let's say that you had $10 trillion invested. I know there's not that much uh, people investing in the stock market, but let's just say $10 trillion you had invested in Apple stock. You were I-rich you know, or I-affluent or whatever. You had so much stock in that, and you had inside information that that company was going to come to complete ruin. How long would you keep your money in there? As soon as you found out that was going to happen, you would take your money out, even if it was quite a bit before. I mean, you don't want to take any chances. Maybe whoever told you that information was wrong. Maybe in reality that that is going to happen a lot sooner than that person thought. You wouldn't waste one second. You would take all that money out. This world's going down. But yet what's weird for us as God's people, we can be increasing our investment in this world. With our time, with our money, with our everything, we are investing our perspective. Everything is getting greater and greater in this world. But we're told in Scripture it's going to crash. Much greater than any stock can, can crash. So why are we still investing in it as if it's going to last forever and we're going to get some kind of return on our investment? We have to recognize that how this is going down. 
And the merchants, verse 11, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. So it hit them in their pocket. They're weeping. It's not, they're not mourning over all the other people that are hurt. They're not distraught and, and have to be comforted because other people are losing everything. It's because they're losing everything. It's completely self, a self-focus. Then he goes into all the things that made it amazing. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense. So perfumes and smells, and I don't even know how they get things to smell how they smell. I have no idea. These scientists can get in there and they can replicate some crazy flower that hardly anyone gets to smell they can duplicate it and you know even that stuff is going to be taken out fragrant oil and frankincense wine and oil fine flour and and wheat cattle and sheep horses and chariots and bodies and the and souls of men that's the biggest thing aren't souls of men the most valuable thing out of all those things of course but they were deceived they were sucked into that deception the fruit of your soul longed the, the the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you and all the things which are rich and splendid have have gone from you and you shall find them no more at all the merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment weeping and wailing they're not going to want to get too close and they're going to see this disaster that happens in an hour in this great city that, that is the hub for all finances and commerce and so forth, and they're going to be weeping and wailing from a distance and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls for in one hour, third time, such great riches came to nothing. Those that are invested in this world, and that's all they're about, they're in, completely consumed with the love of money, whether they live to this point or they die apart from Christ, everything that they invested in has come to nothing. God's going to judge all of it. I've never seen a hearse pull a U-Haul. As the famous saying goes, you can't take it with you. And young people especially that are in here, listen, don't pour in your whole life into this mirage that there is fulfillment in this world apart from Christ. There's a reason why all these, these people in these bands and these movie stars, that they're addicted to drugs, they commit suicide, they, they are miserable. What They have all the things that this world promised, all the things that the enemy promised, that promised uh, the Lord Jesus. You can have all these kingdoms and so forth if you bow down and worship me. And they're destitute and they're hurting and they're depressed and they're without hope and they chased all of that. Don't think there's anything out there worth getting. And somehow, just like the old lie from, the, from Satan in the Garden of Eden, that you're missing out on something. God's holding out on you if you're obedient to what he says. That's the, one of the first lies. So listen to that. Listen to that counsel. Don't learn the hard way. Learn from Scripture the easy way. It's all gone. He continues, Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, 
what is like this great city? They could not even compare. They didn't even know what to compare the city to. It was so amazing. They had no standard of comparison by which to judge this city of how great it was. And they're, they're in shock. They're, in complete, uh, <laughs> they're completely awestruck. They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour, again, she is made desolate. So that's their perspective on their losses related to this city going down and being judged by God. But God has a completely different perspective. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice over this judgment. And you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. So they had great uh, uh, respect and admiration and enjoyed music there in Babylon. It was, they were well known for having a well-rounded orchestra or, or uh, you know, uh, symphonies and so forth. And it's all come to nothing. It won't be heard from you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. Total darkness, which is a picture of where people go that are given over to this. And the voice of bridegroom and bride, they had lots of weddings there, not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. I want you to think about the great men of the earth. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> Could. But just think of the, the financial great men of, this, of the earth. There's going to be more and more of them. The, the very wealthy are getting wealthier and wealthier. There's going to be more and more of these great men of the earth, these merchants and so forth. They, they are, say, or for by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. So these, this deception was going on. These great merchants and so forth were a part of that deception. And in her was found the blood. This is the most heinous thing. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. So somehow this commercial system, this commercial empire that's centered in this city is going to be a part of the persecution of God's people during that seven-year tribulation. And it's very important for us to see that the lust for money and the lust for hoarding life's resources on themselves outshadowed their fear of God related to taking the lives of his people. And God's not going to forget not one of those people that have died as a result of it. And, and so that's why heaven is saying rejoice. Rejoice that this judgment has occurred. Rejoice that these things are going to be stopped. So we'll stop there. Money, as it's been said that money is a great servant but a cruel master. We need to not have money tell us where to go. We need to tell our money where to go. We need to be in control of that because ultimately our money is his money. It's his finances. It's his stewardship that he's entrusted to us. And so take these things to prayer. Maybe your priorities have been all out of whack and all disproportionate to what God's laid out for you to do. Related to, and I'm not talking about, per se, giving to, to our church or another church or a nonprofit organization. I'm just saying in general. 
to look at your finances, to look at what's important to you, where you spend your time, where you spend your money, what's, what are your priorities, what are you modeling for your children? Are you modeling that the kingdom of God is the most important thing in our lives? Or are you modeling that this world is the most important thing? Because when it comes to push and shove, we are going to choose serving the Lord with our time and what our priorities are, or we're going to serve this world and serve our flesh. And, and, and if we have the same heart and attitude that this man did in this, in this parable, we need to repent of that. To, to have such a self-focus, I'm just building my kingdom. And you know what? We don't have to have bigger and bigger barns and, and feel like we're as affluent as that young man or that man was. We, we, can have, we can be just as sinful in our hearts related to our stewardship, even if we perceive to have a very small amount. Say, oh, I don't qualify. That doesn't appeal to me. Yes, it does appeal to, to you and to me. Because everything he's entrusted with us, we are wealthy in this. Well, I don't have servants and I don't, you know... You have a dishwasher, probably. You have a washing machine, probably. You have a vacuum. Those are all servants. I know that may seem extreme, but it's true. I mean, we have, we're affluent in so many ways, and God says, I want you to take a look at what's important to you. Where, where is your heart? What's a priority for you? What are you sowing into? What gets you up every day? What gets, what's the master passion of your life? Is it yourself? Is it what you can accomplish, what you can do, how much stuff you can accumulate, or is it, a kingdom of God that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. This world is coming to an end. Let's not invest heavily in something we know is going to completely crash and burn. Let's focus on eternal things. You know, as it's been said, the gospel is free, but the, the, the plumbing is very expensive. It costs money, and it's true. It costs money to facilitate ministry. And so we know if everybody's doing their part and so forth related to outside the church and inside the church, there won't be a lack of, of finances to, to advance the kingdom. There's so many things. You know, I think of the school of pastoral ministry that, that we believe we're being led to start uh, next September. That's a huge, massive, massive undertaking for us as a fellowship to take on something like that with the size of our church. But God has said, this is what I want you to do for next steps, and we're, we're trying to obey him in those things. Someone just gave $10,000 towards that school that are out, that's outside of our fellowship. I don't even know who they are. And, and that is someone listening. That is someone listening to the Spirit, and the Spirit is saying, I want you to give towards that ministry. I'm birthing that ministry, at least for a season, at least for how much $10,000 will get us. I don't know. But, I mean, someone had eternity in mind. Related to what, what how, God, what do you want me to do with your money? And, and, and God directed them. And now because of that, this school is going to continue to develop. So please keep that in prayer. So all of us just needs to have a, a heart of, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm your servant. I'm listening. Whatever you want me to change, I'm willing to change. You want me on a budget? I'll get on a budget. You want me to start working more aggressively to get out of debt? I'll do that. You want me to give a certain amount? I'll give that. You want me to buy groceries for those that are in the hope shelter that the church helps? I'll do it. Whatever it is. I just think about eternity standing before Christ, having to give an account for every penny, every bit of time that we spend, everything that we do with our time in different ways. And we're going to have to give an account for that. And I want all of us to be able to give a good account to where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.